All right. Jonathan had a great idea to um, make the slides like in negative. So hopefully the writing is easier because we think our bulb is getting a little dim. So it's hard to see the white things up there. So he did it this way. Hopefully it's easier for you to see. Um, today we are going to cross the divide. It's an exciting day. Uh, last week we finished chapter three, which means we're going to move into chapter four right here. So we're crossing over the therefore. If you remember from the design conversations we've had, the letter to the Ephesians is divided pretty neatly into two halves. The first half being chapters one through three, and the last half being chapters four through six. So as we go here into chapter four, Paul is going to start to make applications um, for how to live. He is going to encourage you to live as if chapters one through three are the truth. He's going to talk about how to walk out the reality of the apocalypse, of the revelation that we have in Jesus, how to live out the reality of being um, a new creation humanity. And chapters four through six, while they have a lot of application and practical points, they're not a rule book, and we can't look at them that way. A great point that they made in the class is that chapters four through six do not exhaust the possibilities of chapters one through three. If you focus on practical steps just as rules, then it excludes so many other things that the Spirit would want to do. You just limit all of the implication down to just a few things. There's so many other things that the Spirit does. He pairs with the Word to show you how to live in your context, whatever your specific situation is. So that's just something to keep in mind that um, the Spirit is going to pair with the wisdom of the Word to show you how to walk out the heavenly reality of being a new creation person. So let's just go ahead and read through the first couple slides. I think this takes us to verse 10. So let's read chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Therefore, I urge y'all, I, the prisoner in the Lord, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which y'all have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being zealous to keep the oneness of the Spirit with the bond of peace, one body and one spirit, just as y'all were called by one hope of y'all's calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of everyone, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us was given a grace gift, according to the measure of the gift of the Messiah. Therefore it says, Having ascended to the height, he took captive the captive forces. He gave gifts to people. Now, what is he ascended, except that he also descended to the lower regions of the land? The one who descended, he is also the one who ascended, high above all things in the heavenly realms, in order that he might fulfill all things. We'll stop there for now and just go back and start to look over this. So you return to verse 1, you'll see already some action words. He's going to start to make applications. So one of the first things he does is he tells you to walk, you to put into motion 
the things that are true from chapters one through three, to put into motion the fact that you're exalted and seated in the heavenly realms with Jesus. And that's the truest form of your identity. He wants you to walk in a manner that's worthy of that calling. Calling takes us all the way back to chapter one, where we learned about that heavenly reality and about our real identity. So he wants you to walk in a way that corresponds to the fact that you are now a new creation, that you are in Messiah Jesus, and you're not as you once were. You've been made alive. You've been made something new. He gives you some details on what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Some important points here in verse 2 and verse 3. He says this walk should look like you being in humility, exercising gentleness, having patience, bearing with one another in love, being zealous to keep the oneness of the Spirit with the bond of peace. The oneness of the Spirit, that brings us back to that concept of unity that Paul has talked so much about in Ephesians. It's emphasized over and over again. And you can see he's starting to get into that theme of unity. If you look at all these qualities of our walk, there's something important to notice about humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. They all take place within the context of a relationship. If you want to grow in humility, you need to be in relationship with another person to humble yourself before. And if you want to say, well, I can just humble myself before God in private. I don't need to humble myself before people. You should probably look at why you can't humble yourself before people. That's not a good way to be. Um, if you're going to be patient, you need to be with other people. If you're going to bear the burdens of your brothers and sisters, you have to be in relationship with them. So he's really hitting on this idea of unity and of dwelling together. He develops it even further by talking about oneness. We have one body. We're described as the body of Christ. You all together make up the body of Jesus. Jesus manifests himself here on earth in and through you. You are his body. And that body is all animated by one spirit. We all have the same Holy Spirit that lives inside of us and animates us as a body. We all have one hope. We share the common identity as exiles. This world is not our home. We all have that future hope that future destiny that we look to. We all have our eyes fixed on the same inheritance, the same better country. That's our hope. There's one faith. Oh, I skipped one. There's one Lord. That's an important one. Jesus. He is the only way. He is the one Lord. There's one faith. There's only one confession of loyalty to Jesus, that he's the way. There's one baptism, one sacred event that we go through that symbolizes our death, burial, and resurrection to new life. And he saves the best for last. There's one God and Father over all. Can anybody count how many ones there are? How many ones does Paul use there? Seven. Yeah, there's seven ones there. And that's really significant and important. There's a significance to this sevenfold unity. In Hebrew scripture, seven is a symbol of perfection 
or completeness. Now we know that Paul was steeped in the Hebrew scriptures and seven comes up over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. It stands for perfection or completeness. And here it represents this perfect unity of the body of Christ, the perfect, complete unity of God's people with each other. Here's an interesting question though. When Paul says that the body of Christ is perfectly unified, does that mean that it is uniform? There's a difference between unity and uniformity, and it's so important as we consider the body of Christ. He's not at all saying that because you're unified, you're uniform. That's not the case. It's interesting to think about what does the world do when it wants to create unity? What is the, how does the world take a bunch of individuals, bring them together, and get them to be united? It forces uniformity. That's what the world does. It has to remove individuality to create unity. A really great example of this is the military. Now, this isn't an indictment on the military. What they do to create unity is really effective. What I want to do here is just highlight this point of the difference between the way that God does things in the body and the way the world tries to do things. So in the military, if you're going to join up, you go to boot camp and you get there and you're an individual. You might have long hair, you might have glasses, maybe you wear contacts. All these different individuals dress differently. They come from different backgrounds. They prefer different foods. They talk in different ways, all of these things. Well, when they arrive, all their individuality is stripped away. You get standard issue glasses. You get the same clothes. You get the same haircut. You have to eat the same gross food. You have to do all of these things. Your individuality is stripped away. And then you're put into these engineered circumstances and situations that further strip your individuality and force you to work together as a unit. And it's very effective. So much so that those people grow to call each other brothers, right? But that is not the way that God works to create unity. He does not have to search the world carefully to find people that all look the same and talk the same and believe exactly the same things. Um, he doesn't have to use a cookie cutter or some kind of mold when he's creating humanity so that his plan will work out later for these people to be unified. That's not what he does. He unites people through the power of his spirit rather, through, rather than being through manipulation and controlling their individuality. It's actually in diversity that God's victory over the divisive powers is expressed by perfect unity. He does not have to strip away the way that he made each individual, but he can still completely and perfectly unify them. He doesn't play by the rules of the powers. He doesn't use their categories to unite people. He creates something entirely new that didn't even exist before Jesus. And that's what we are as the church. We're, we're united by the spirit. This uh, principle is so perfectly illustrated here by Paul. So he's used this word one in verses four through six to emphasize this unity, this oneness that we all have together. And he uses the word one differently here in verse seven to perfectly exemplify the principle of unity, not uniformity. He says, but to each one of us was given a grace gift. 
each one. He uses the word one here to put emphasis on the individual and that individual's distinctiveness from the group. It's just a perfect example of unity, not uniformity. He's going to go on to talk more about all of these different gifts that Jesus gives to the church. But first, he does a little a digression here, going into verse 8. Therefore, it says, having ascended to the height, he took captive the captive forces. He gave gifts to people. You'll notice that that is in quotes. So he's drawing that from somewhere in the Old Testament. He's pulling something from his Hebrew scriptures, and he's using it to talk about Jesus. He's using that to frame something Jesus did. He goes on in verses 9 through 10 to give you a commentary on that Old Testament scripture. He's talking about Jesus here. It's very obvious. It's a lot of the same language we've already used. So what is he ascended? We know Jesus ascended, except that he also descended to the lower regions of the land. That's referencing when Jesus died, when he went into the grave. That's him descending to the lower regions of the land. So Jesus, the one who descended into the grave, is also the one who ascended high above all things in the heavenly realm in order that he might fulfill all things. That's really familiar language for what happened to Jesus, what Jesus did. We've talked about that so much through this letter. So anytime Paul quotes from the Old Testament, what is it good to do? It's good to go back and look at what he's quoting to see what point is he trying to make by using this portion here. So this is from Psalm 68. This section here that he's quoting is Psalm 68. So if you were to go look at Psalm 68, you would expect it to be the same as what he says in Ephesians, but it's not, which is quite interesting. In this box here is the quote from Ephesians 4. You can see the first couple lines match the Hebrew text of Psalm 68. You ascended to the height, you took captive the captives, and then if you look in the Septuagint, the Greek rendering of the Hebrew text, it also matches up. You ascended to the height, you took captive the captives. But why is the last line different? Do you see that? In Ephesians, he says he gave gifts to people, but clearly the quote from Psalm 68 says, you received gifts among men. You received gifts among men. So what's happening here? Does Paul just not know the scripture very well? That's definitely not true. Um, he's doing something here. He is adapting his quote because he has the entirety of Psalm 68 on the brain. He has the whole story of Psalm 68. I'm not going to go deep into the whole story of Psalm 68 because it's kind of long and there's a lot of really big concepts in it. But just to give you a highlight reel of why he's using this. Uh, Psalm 68 depicts God as this divine warrior, and he's battling his enemies, and he's freeing captives. It says in Psalm 68 that he leads forth the prisoners, and that they're singing. They're glorifying him. In a lot of ways, it replays the Exodus story, especially in those terms of deliverance and God having victory over his enemies. Also in Psalm 68, you'll see God choosing to make Mount Sinai his dwelling place. And he does that over and against Mount Bashan. 
We've talked about Mount Bashan before, but it's been months before. Mount Bashan came to be associated with uh, dark powers, uh, dark spiritual forces, the spiritual forces of evil. That is where Jesus took his disciples when Peter made his confession that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus said, on this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He was standing at Mount Bashan, that symbol of the spiritual forces of evil that he would overcome in his death and resurrection. So God chooses Mount Sinai and he stakes his claim against the spiritual forces of evil as his enemies. Psalm 68 says that God crushes the heads of his enemies. And that's a recall to Genesis 3.15. Remember, he's going to crush the serpent's head with his heel. It's a recall back to Genesis. And his victory is celebrated with the worship and praise of those that he's rescued, the people that he's delivered. There's so many big biblical concepts in Psalm 68, all the way from Genesis through to the complete fulfillment of victory. So as Paul thinks about Jesus's death and his resurrection, his heavenly exaltation, his defeat of the powers, it makes perfect sense that this psalm would be on his mind, that his mind would recall this psalm as he thinks about all that Jesus did, all that Jesus fulfilled, that these Old Testament scriptures would come back to him. So most likely what Paul is doing here in this quote is he's adapting the last line of his quote in Ephesians to match the last line of Psalm 68. So you can see here in Ephesians, it says he gave gifts to people. And the last line of Psalm 68 is the God of Israel himself gives strength and power to the people. He's using this psalm to talk about Jesus as the divine warrior that was victorious over his enemies, the divine warrior that set free the captives. And from his place of victory and triumph over all of that evil, he gives gifts to his people. So he's got that whole psalm on his mind as he's thinking about Jesus giving gifts to people. He actually could have been recalling this psalm. You can see glimpses of this psalm throughout the rest of Ephesians. Um, We've talked so much about God giving power, giving strength to his people. So this could have been something that, you know, maybe is something he was studying at the time. So if you move on to verse 11, this just says a one, but it got cut off here. This is verse 11. You begin to see... Um, Jesus giving these gifts to the church. He begins to talk about the gifts that Jesus has given. He gives apostles, he gives prophets, he gives evangelists, shepherds, teachers, all for the equipping of the church so that the church can be uh, built up and attain to all these different things, unity of the faith, knowing of the Son of God. And it says we can attain unto a mature man. Some places in your Bible, depending on what your translation is, when you read the word man, it might mean mankind. It might mean humankind. Here, this is actually masculine gendered language. The word man here is in the masculine sense, which is a really cool callback to our divine warrior from Psalm 68. And it also sets the stage for our divine warrior that we're going to look at in Ephesians 6, the one that is wearing the armor of God. 
He's developing all of these themes already. So we're built up into this mature man. And he talks about the church also. So we're built up so that we're no longer easily deceived and tossed about by the waves. And he talks about uh, the church in terms of all this different body language um, with Messiah as the head. This is an interesting metaphor because you'll see here, um, let us grow up into everything, into him who is the head, Messiah, from whom all the body proceeds, from whom all the body is united. This is kind of a picture of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because you can see, we need to be built up into the body of Messiah, but also we proceed from him. It's kind of a picture of that. What is God's bit and what is my bit? And the reality is that we're so united that you really can't parse that out. It all works together in ways that we don't completely understand. So there's this back and forth, again, between human responsibility and God's sovereignty. So here in verse 15, what does the word head mean? It's important to get a broad understanding of how this Greek word, the word is kephale, is used because the range of meaning for the word kephale in the Greek language is not the same range of meaning for our English word head. It's different. The meaning here, which I'll get into, is obvious, but it's not so much in other places, like in chapter 5, where we talk about the marriage relationship. So if you're going to talk about something that's difficult to understand in one place, it's good to look at another place where it comes a little more easily, which is right here. So Messiah as the head from whom all the body being joined together and united together with all of these different parts comes from. The key to focus on here is from whom. So the idea behind head here is source. Source is the meaning here. The body comes from the head. A comparison in English for a meaning of this word would be like headwaters or trailhead, a place where something starts and then everything else proceeds from it. But source is not the primary meaning of the word head in English. Head in English has lots of other nuances. Um, it has nuances of authority, like to head things up. It has nuances of leadership. Kephale, the Greek word, primarily refers to, first of all, a literal head um, or a literal source, like the head of a river. Or it's often also used metaphor metaphorically to mean prominent, as in the most visible prominent part of something can also mean kephale. Um, in Ephesians 1.22, we see the same concept of source, where the word says, he placed all things under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all in all. So again, you see the body language connected with the word head. From the source comes down the fullness of the one who fills all in all. And this is also very similar to Colossians 1.18. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. 
you can see that concept of source being used for head there also in Colossians. As you can imagine, we have tons of examples of contemporary literature and writing and communication in um, the Greek language from the time that the Bible was written. We can go back and look at those Greek, Greek, Greek texts. Um, some of them were written at the same time as the New Testament, and those do not use the word kephale for authority. They have other words that they use for authority in Greek. Little Scott and Jones's Greek-English lexicon is one of the most exhaustive and well-respected lexicons of ancient Greek. It is drawn from numerous sources of Greek text, and it has not been influenced by later theological uses of the word kephale. And thus, it does not give authority or leader as a meaning for this word head. The Hebrew word, this is another interesting like little fact about the word kephale. The Septuagint um, points out the meaning of this word. So there's the Hebrew word for head, and that word is rosh. And that word is often used metaphorically to mean leader, kind of similar to the English language, where the word head can have connotations of leadership. In Hebrew, the word rosh, which is the word for head, also has connotations and nuances that mean leadership. It is actually used in that way 170 times in the Old Testament. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, when the Septuagint was uh, created, kephale was only used six times out of that 170, which tells us that its primary meaning is something other than leader or authority. Usually, when the word rosh was being used to convey leadership or authority, the Greek word archon was what was used to translate rosh, rather than kephale. Those times that kephale was used to translate rosh usually implied prominence or preeminence. Um, some of the key scriptures that that is used on is when God says, like, I'm going to make you the head and not the tail. That's some of the times where kephale is used indicating a position of prominence or of honor in comparison to a place of shame, the head and the tail. But it is not a term used for authority or leader. We'll definitely return and talk more about kephale and see some more of the interesting examples of how that word is used in Greek literature and in the Greek language. But I just wanted to touch on it here since it is uh, before we get to chapter 5. So moving on... We're going to go back to talking about the gifts that Jesus gives the church. So this is an interesting concept. People as gifts. This is another facet of grace. So there's God's gift of grace to us in forgiveness, the offer of forgiveness of sins, the offer of salvation. And beyond that, we're really familiar with the language of gifts. You know, you'll have people ask you, what's your gifting? what you're calling, you know, what particular gift of um, building up the church has the Lord given to you? And that's the sense we're going to talk about it in now. So you have verse 8 up here, talking about picturing Jesus as giving gifts to people. And then he goes into his commentary, and then he connects verse 8 with verse 11 by going back into this. And he gave. So what did Jesus give? He gave apostles, he gave prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers 
for the equipping and the building up of the body. So this is an interesting concept. Um, those people themselves were given a gift of apostleship or a gift of evangelism. And then as they exercise it, they themselves become a gift to serve the body and to build up the body of Christ. They become this God-empowered gift to do those things. So there's a quote that sums this up pretty well. Um, Every believer is to reckon himself or herself dependent upon the single gift of divine mercy. That's that first gift, that offer of forgiveness of sins and salvation. Believers cannot boast as if there were something about themselves that rendered them worthy of the divine call. Regrounded in the mercy of God, they're able to perceive their differentiated roles within the believer community as divinely distributed gifts. So the point here, remember when Paul talked about grace, he highlighted that incongruity, that mismatch between the huge lavishness of the grace that God gives us, that he offers to us, and pairing that with our worthiness of receiving that. There's a huge mismatch between those two things. And the same thing applies when we're talking about gifts within the church, um, or we're talking about gifts um, that people embody to serve and to build up the church. And Paul talks about his own ministry in these terms. He says, I was the least of these But still, this grace has been given to me to minister and take this message to the Gentiles and illuminate it for everyone. So if Paul, the apostle to these churches, didn't warrant the grace that he received as a leader, then no one else in leadership of those communities did either. There's nothing in yourself that would cause you to merit any position of responsibility that you have within the believer community. Leadership is not something that belongs to you. It's not something that belongs to me. It's given as a gift. And it's that same upside-down idea of honor and shame that we've talked so much about before. It was no longer about how you could merit something or or what you were in your flesh, and that's why you got things. It's this upside-down, totally different concept of honor and shame. The powers attempt to work in this a lot. Um, They attempt to work in giftings all the time and cause people to want to compete with each other. They cause people to want to compete for gifts and to want to compete for position in the community of believers. Um, They'll try to influence and make efforts to draw people into favoritism and into partiality towards certain giftings and towards certain people. It's like when that community of believers was saying, I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by Apollos. That's the working of the powers. (laughs) They're doing something there within that community to get people to focus on what they're not supposed to focus on. So character and self-sacrificial love are so important in the community of believers, not just because that's the correct thing to do, but also because it protects you from assigning too much importance to yourself. And it keeps you from chasing after things that are not the point, 
that are not what you're supposed to be chasing after. So the last half of the quote here, just as Paul's authority to instruct as an apostle is a product of a grace gift, so each of them has a gift given to them. Within this community, honor does not have to be sought. All the honor that counts has already been given or will be given by God. Freed from the need to establish their honor and competition, believers can afford to grant it to others. So the new creation eliminates the need for people to establish their own honor according to the powers. Instead of jockeying to increase your own clout in the community of believers, it becomes all about giving honor to other people because you yourself have been regrounded in the mercy and in the grace of God. It's all about giving honor away. So you don't have to attain it for yourself. It's an amazing thing that God has done that completely defies the way that people live out in the world. So when Jesus says a new commandment, I give you love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another by this. Everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, that's the verse that came to mind as I started thinking about being in a community where people don't compete for honor and position and authority. That's the verse that came to mind. when I think about giving away honor to be in this community where you love one another in such way. And he's not just saying, be nice to each other. Um, that's not, not all that he's saying. It's this new way of living that is totally contrary to the rules of that game that we were all trapped in before we got freedom from the powers, before we came into the Messiah. It's something uh, completely new. It's a whole new way to live, empowered by the Spirit and rooted and established in God's grace and mercy toward all of us. So that is the end of what we'll talk about today. Um, next week, no, not next week. I'll be gone for two weeks. And when I come back, we'll go into talking a little bit about some of those gifts, apostles, prophets, shepherds, teachers, pastors, all of that stuff. We'll talk about that next time. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the amazing and incredible work that you have done. Lord, that you started the work of new creation right here in this present age, Lord, and that you're glorifying yourself through your church. Thank you for the incredible victory that you've won for us, Lord. It is awesome. God, help us to live according to your truth. It is it's so beautiful to talk about and to think about, Lord. We just want to embody that. We want to embody humility and self-sacrificial love to each other because that's what you did for us. That's what you did while you were here on earth, Lord. Grow and develop that character in us that makes us look more and more like Jesus. Just speak to us. Give us that gentle whisper in those times that are challenging. Challenge us to love one another, to bear with one another during those times, Lord. Thank you for all that you're doing, Lord, and all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.